Hello and welcome to another edition of Mormon Matters, your weekly podcast, which is intended to be a romp through all things Mormon, all the events, current events, history, pop culture, and other issues uh, within the world of Mormonism this week. Uh, my name is John DeLynn. I'm your host. And today, uh, I could not be more excited to have four distinguished panelists with us. Two of these panelists are returning from previous appearances on Mormon Matters. First is John Hamer, who is the executive director of the John Whitmer Historical Association. John is a cultural Mormon and an independent researcher, historian, and map maker. He's currently co-editing a book called Scattering of the Saints, Schisms Within Mormonism, due out this September. Welcome, John Hamer. Hi, thanks. And Ann Porter is a software developer and a married mother of three. She is a convert of over 20 years who has an ambivalent relationship with church history. She writes for the Mormon-themed blog, The Cultural Hall, and is also guest blogging at various stages of Mormondom. Welcome, Ann. Hi, great to be here again. Um, thanks, Ann. And uh, we are excited to announce two uh, new panelists on Mormon Matters. Our first is Paul Mayfield. Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? All right. Hi, everyone. My name is Paul Mayfield. I live up in the uh, Seattle area where I met John a few years ago. Uh, he and I were working at Microsoft together at the time. I've been up here about 10 years, grew up in the Salt Lake area, got my degree from the University of Utah in computer science, and uh, have, I don't know, a hodgepodge of uh, hobbies. They seem to change every six months or so, the latest ones being sort of looking into alternate energy and uh, ham radio. So thanks for letting me be here, John. Oh, fun. Uh, fun uh, fun stuff, ham radio. I had no idea that such a techie would be doing so something so uh, old school. Yeah, I like to mix in the old school every now and then. Well, that's good. You're keeping it real. Okay, um, well, welcome, Paul. And then finally, uh, Blake Osler has joined us. Blake, why don't you tell those of us who don't know uh, anything about you, tell us a bit about yourself. Well, hi, everybody. I'm delighted and honored to be here. And uh, I grew up in Sandy, Utah, um, to uh, parents who were already saints. The rest of us are just saints in the making. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I'm a beet digger. For anybody who knows, if you know what a beet digger is, I don't need to explain it. For the rest of you, that's somebody who grew up in Sandy, Utah and went to Jordan High School. Right. And. That's the and, mascot. That's the mascot, right? That's right. It's unique. I, I'll tell you a story later on about a, meeting a guy in Greece who just ran into him, and I told him where I was from, and he said, you're a beat digger. I, <laughs> yeah, I am. See, we're world famous. <laughs> I, uh, I went to Brigham Young University after a mission to Italy and uh, studied uh, neurophysiology and psychobiology as kind of adjuncts to another degree in philosophy. And then I went to the U of U and did a joint degree in law and in jurisprudence or the, or, uh, the philosophy of law. And I'm a, an attorney practicing law in Salt Lake City, Utah, specialized in education law and uh, constitutional law, along with uh, commercial litigation. Um, so I'm, I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> well, 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 we give you a hearty welcome, Blake Osler. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Well, um, I guess there's been some very interesting things in the news uh, recently. And maybe we'll start um, with a few of the 
Well, maybe we'll start w- with maybe an easy one, and then we'll we'll dig into one a little bit deeper. Um, let's start out with a recent article that uh, has been uh, th- that I read today in the Salt Lake Tribune, but it's also in the Daily Herald. The, the title of the article is "Should the LDS Church Be Required to Reveal Its Finances?" Um, uh, Paul, uh, I, I'm I'm sorry, uh, Blake. Uh, I assume you've read this article, and and I think you mentioned before the show that you've actually done some work with the church. So why don't you give us just a background, a little bit about this case and what the story is, and then maybe we can discuss uh, how we all think and feel about it. Well, this is a case that's brought in the state of Oregon, um, a lower court. It it, it arises, I should say, out of an allegation that a home teacher molested an individual while he was a minor, no longer a minor, And because of the fact that this person was a home teacher, the church has been sued. The uh, plaintiff is seeking punitive damages. It's common when punitive damages are sought to have a disclosure of the wealth of the defendants so that it can be determined what amount would in fact be a deterrent or a punishment um, and sufficient as punitive damages and uh, so they've asked the church to disclose its finances all of them and the LDS church is somewhat unique in that it, it all of its finances are centrally located and controlled um, that's fairly unique among any churches Christian or otherwise and the church has steadfastly resisted for over 20 years now disclosing its total financial holdings the problem is that in this case, you're not merely going to get a wards financial disclosure or a stake financial disclosure or a region financial disclosure. They get the whole shoot and match all at once. And uh, so, the you know, the bottom line is the church is going to resist this. I will say that the bottom line also is that I believe that the plaintiff is doing this, in my opinion, it's a fairly sleazy maneuver because it really doesn't have anything to do with the case. It's simply a way to bring the church to a quick settlement. It has nothing to do with the merits, and anybody who's familiar with the LDS church will know that a position as a home teacher hardly qualifies on what is the usual standard of law for imposing liability, and that's that the person is an employee, and the employer stands in a vicarious um, relationship for liability. But, you know, being a being a home teacher is so out there in terms of relationship to the church it's hard for me to fathom that the lower court hasn't hasn't already dismissed the case the lower court granted refused to um, stay the disclosure of the church's finances the matter was appealed to the Oregon Supreme Court and the Oregon Supreme Court refused to handle the matter refused to to, um, respond in essence and so the order of the lower court stands and the only recourse the church will have at this point is either to reach a quick settlement, disclose its total finances, or get a, a writ of mandamus and peel this thing to the United States Supreme Court as fast as it can. Interesting. Well, let me let, let me just ask Blake. Let me ask you just a quick question, in case you have any insight, uh, and then I'll throw it to the to the panel. But um, you know, as I understand it, in up until the late 1950s. The church actually was quite transparent and open with its finances. And this article talks about the stuff that many of us have read before, that in the early, in the David O. McKay administration, in the early 1960s, 
the church started maybe spending more than it had to try and expand and build chapels all over the world with Henry Moyle and stuff. And 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 for some reason, the decision was made uh, to stop being public. Do you have Do you have any sense for why the church wouldn't want to be public, or can you even guess or imagine or? Well, actually, I'm going to decline to answer the question because I know precisely. I used to work with Curtin and McConkie that represented the church, and I know precisely the reason, but I, I fear attorney-client privilege even okay. this many, oh, <laughs> sure. these years later. And and so I'm going to decline to answer that. Um, however, I will give my opinion that I believe the church ought to be transparent. I think the members have a right to know um, how their tithing money is being used. I don't have one second of hesitation to to say I don't worry at all about whether or not the money is being appropriately used for church purposes and to further the goals of the church. Or and I I don't hesitate to say that I'm not worried about fraud or that people you know are are some way um, taking advantage of position because that they're, the auditors have a very tight control on that and they're excellent auditors. Um, and so I'm, you're going to have to forgive me right off because I'm going to beg off of that one because no, that, of duties that I owe. <laughs> no, I, I, that, that's not a problem. And it, it's good to at least, I mean, it's interesting for me to hear you say that you would like to see that transparency, but you probably understand why that may or may not be possible. But that's fine. Uh, Anne, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I think it's uh, an, an interesting question because I am a, I personally would like to see the finances disclosed. Uh, I know a whole lot of people who think that it's terrible that the church does not disclose its finances, that it's just an awful thing and probably illustrative of, you know, that we don't know anything and that it's all secret and, you know, and, oh, this terrible mall thing. Um, But I think it's, I, I truly think that if they were... That, that the church, the church has nothing to gain by disclosing its finances. Right. So should they? Well, I, I think it would be great if they did, uh, but I think they would have nothing to gain by doing so. And Why do you think they have nothing to gain by doing so? Um, well, because it's just laying out in the open opportunities for people opportunities for people to criticize the other the other possibility and this is something that I, I just read today which somewhat makes sense is that the speculation is is that the church is just wealthy beyond imagination you know i mean there was a time magazine article about how how incredibly how incredibly much wealth the church has and most of that is probably tied up in real estate and buildings and temples and expense uh, expense incurring assets right yes but they are assets and it might make the regular pleas for tithing seem uh grasping and people in other words people might say oh the church is really wealthy they don't need my money right well and especially especially people who are, you know, struggling to get by. You know, it's, it's you know, the church, um, it, it seems, it's a, people always seem to say that the, that the commandments that are easiest to keep 
are the commandments that are most important are the ones that are easiest for them to keep. Uh, it's it, when you're struggling to get by. It, tithing is a is an enormous act of faith. It's an enormous act of faith when you're struggling to get by, and if you're looking at a balance sheet that says that you're giving, you know. 10% of your $1,000 a month salary that's going to support your family of three because you clean hotels for a living and your deadbeat ex-husband doesn't pay, doesn't pay child support. And that $100 a month, which is not a lot, but when you only have 1000 it's a whole lot, is going to a corporation that has billions of dollars in assets, that's going to stick a little going down. That's going to be hard to do. I, I, so guess I, I guess there's a pure interpretation that says tithing is a commandment. God said do it. And for certain people, you know, the, their, their situation might not come into it. But, but I guess in all reality, you're, you're right. There might be people for whom that, that would be an issue. So that's, that's interesting. Paul, did, it sounds like you might have some thoughts on this. You know, I, I can imagine some good reasons not to disclose the finances, you know, if, if you have big pockets, you can attract all sorts of people to come after them. And, you know, even, even the church is a significant buyer of lots of things. And so I can imagine that, um, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with someone for whom you're contracting services and they know that, you know, you have a, a lot of means and so forth, that that can make things complicated there. But, you know, we can, we can your overall, bargaining position, you mean? Yeah, I can weaken a bargaining position or, you know, just complicate a bargaining position. Right. But, you know, overall, I think the, uh, you know, I, I definitely do feel that it would be good to have the disclosure for, for a few reasons. Um, I guess the first one would be that I don't understand why we need so much money in the church, you know, or why the church would need so much money. Um, I understand the principle of tithing and sacrifice and that sort of thing on, uh, for the individuals. Right. Sorry, my microphone muted. For the church as a whole... Uh, you know, I, you think about what it takes to manage and deal with all that money, and it just seems like a huge distraction. I mean, we send, um, you know, members from the general authorities to uh, lobby for church interests in the state government and that sort of thing. You know, when the, uh, you know, simple example is when the, the uh, when Nordstrom's a few years ago was thinking of moving to the Gateway Mall, and and the church, you know, just got involved in the discussion. Let alone, you know, I, I'm not criticizing that church leaders went and, and uh, petitioned there, but the, the fact that we have so much to go manage and take care of just feels like it's a distraction from the core mission of the church, and so I think it would be nice to lose that distraction. And There always is the, the worry that, you know, power can corrupt, and, and uh, you know, none of us are exempt from that, and having lots of money is, is an opportunity for that. Now, I tend to agree with Blake that uh, the church probably does a pretty good job of maintaining its accounts and maintaining its audits, and you know, generally, I don't think there's a huge desire to, to you know, commit fraud or anything else like that that goes on. But, you know, it, I, I think the core issue to me is that, you know, I think having that much money is just something that, that distracts from the core mission of what you're trying to accomplish. Interesting. John Hamer, any, any final thoughts before we... Uh... No, I guess I would want to apply it kind of broadly that I just would think that in the country... Uh, non-profit corporations, charities, and churches should all just report how much they're making, even if they're not being taxed. They're taxed 
uh, tax-free, but I think that just in the, uh, it's probably a good principle to to report earnings anyway. Right. You know, actually, I, I'd second that because at the end of the day, the church's tax-exempt status does, you know, equate to some sort of subsidy on the part of even non-members for the, for the church's interests. And I think it's responsible to have these kinds of disclosures publicly available just because other taxpayers uh, may have you know, concerns about that outside of the Mormon church. Right. Well, Blake, since you opened this one off, do you have any final thoughts or reflections before we uh, move to the next topic? Yeah, very, very simply. I, I'd like to see the church have as much money as it possibly can. I think that, <laughs> yeah. that uh, you know, the... The, and I, I can tell you, I you know, when I pay my tithing, I take and hand it to my wife, and I, I actually she pays it. I I don't even know at the end of the year whether I'm a full tithe payer or not. So um, I don't worry about it. But I I do pay tithing on the sole principle that I don't want to be so tied to money that it controls me. And that's that's the only thing, you know I'm very simple about that. Um, and I've worked directly with the people who are controlling the funds. There are a number of corporations. The church is broken up into the corporation of the presiding bishopric. Corporation of the President. There are other related entities, um, and they have different um, jobs that they do. They, you know, the, the presiding bishopric looks over essentially the temporal affairs of the church because of the early revelations about how the Aaronic priesthood is a temporal type of a priesthood. And at least for you know, I live in in Utah. I'm close to Salt Lake City. I work in downtown Salt Lake City. Without the church's um, involvement there, Salt Lake would be dead. It, you know, there'd be hardly anything happening. Well, it wouldn't have existed in the first place. Let's admit it. But <laughs> you know, the bottom line is, is that the the church's financial involvement employs literally thousands upon thousands of people, and uh, with given our growth, just keeping up with with building temples and new chapels. You know, we may be fabulously wealthy, but we're taxed. We we actually have a need, and I won't go beyond that. I, um, while I believe that disclosure is is healthier than non-disclosure, the reasons, and I'm I'm privy to those reasons. I believe they're good reasons, and I think they're very rational and sound reasons for not disclosing. Uh, and I believe that a rational person could see either view. Is there, you know, one of the things as I've been. Um you know, every, I have a lot of friends who are frustrated or disaffected from the church just because I try and have a little ministry to help help them out and maybe help them feel a little less angry. But there are accusations that, you know, the brethren make these huge six-figure salaries and that, you know, that it's that it's a big, um, I don't know, kind of a trough. Is I guess I guess the church understands that by by being private, it really can't respond to those types of accusations. But is there anything that's available that could help, either anecdotally or otherwise, Blake, that you're aware of, that could help maybe people um, dispel that those urban legends or those rumors? Uh, is there anything that you can offer there that can that can help people sort of put that away as something that might concern them? You know, John, I really don't know yeah. anything. Okay. I I mean, either either they trust, yeah, you know, or they don't trust yeah. and. Yeah. It's true that that uh, I'll tell you I know of a number of general authorities who, I mean, in particular, I've had direct dealings with them who have been financially destitute because of all of the work they've done for the church, leaving and coming back. They can't 
they really don't have much of a stipend and they, they can't really keep a business going. It involves a lot of sacrifice. Some have been very successful. I can tell you that, that Neil Maxwell, for instance, donated all of the royalties from, from his books um, to causes outside of his own household. And, uh, you know, in my involvement with them, I just don't, I don't see a lot of materialistic focus about being rich. Yeah, sure. Um, I, though it bothers me, for instance, when I, I, I know, for instance, that Joseph Fielding Smith never had a job outside the church, and when he passed away, he left millions behind. And, you know, one wonders, how does that kind of thing happen? <laughs> well, so. it's, it's probably, it was probably Doctrines of Salvation and those books that he, I mean, I don't know. It's, yeah, I, I, he had a very a very substantial income from the books. He earned it legitimately, and I... I don't begrudge him that, but you know, without the position, he wouldn't have sold the books, right. and, I, and that may get in the craw of people. Um, but people, let me say this: we're upside down about money. I mean, we pay money for the most banal things in the world. Football. I mean, how much do football players make and NBA players make? And when when people who do things that really matter get paid, we all moan and gripe. I mean, oh my crazy! I think the world's upside down essentially when it comes to money. Sure. Teachers teachers ought to be the rich ones. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that's good. Well, that, that that was a healthy, good discussion. I appreciate you all for. Uh, for jumping in on that, let's let's go ahead and move um, to maybe what's going to be the meat of the discussion today. Um, the, the Paul actually um, alerted me to this press release, but the church put out a press release, you know, in early July of 2007. For those uh, listening uh, in posthumously or whatever, um, but it was a very interesting uh, press release about the church's approach to Mormon history. And so, John Hamer, why don't you? Maybe tell us a bit about that press release. Maybe give us some context if you can associate it with the PBS series because that's what it seems to be responding to. And, and feel free to read certain passages if you think they'll help our listeners understand it better because they will not have read it most likely before this uh, listening to what we're talking about. Sure. Yeah, it's a press release on the church's website and it seems to be weighing in on some of the uh, these controversies in Mormon history that we've actually been talking about on Mormon Matters, so especially, like you say, the PBS special, it reference, references that directly, and it may well also be um, writing in, with, in, keeping in mind some of these things that we've talked about with the Mountain Meadows Massacre and the September Dawn movie and that sort of thing, although that's not explicitly referenced. And so in the uh, press release, it says that increasing media attention has led many journalists to explore Mormon history, some of them have questioned the miraculous aspects of the faith and have inquired as to why Latter-day Saints continue to believe uh, the miraculous aspects as reality and not as myth. Some writers have suggested that Mormons have a tougher sell with their faith because the miraculous events associated with its history are relatively recent and not obscured by antiquity. And they give an example, for, for an example is, from the perspective of believers, Joseph Smith's miraculous visions give real meaning to their lives, not because of their symbolic value, but because they actually happened. Right. And and so, in a way, this is this is framing this as the as the as a controversy between faithful history and secular history. But I think that the way that the press release frames the argument, it, it's actually misframes it because the implication is that. Uh, naturally, the naturally uh, secular approach of journalists and historians automatically places them at odds with all things miraculous. And the problem 
that keeps, seems that keeps arising in Latter Day Saint history is not that uh, is not that's not the problem. The problem is not uh, secular hist historians are completely capable of approaching reports of miraculous events with due dignity and with respect. I mean, a great example of that is uh, uh, one of my mentors, Jan Ships, who is an, uh, one of the foremost historians in, in uh, the Mormon movement. And, you know, she does not, uh, she doesn't detract from miraculous events. She's not, she's not denying, you know, Joseph Smith's purported visions, that sort of thing. The problem in Mormon history arises when our uh, current teachings, when we might have like Mormon folklore, doesn't match the historic record. And the perfect example uh, is the example here, cited here in the press release is the first vision. You know, when my ancestors were converted to Mormonism in, in the winter of 1832-1833, the missionaries who came to them did not preach to them about the first vision because the first vision at the time was, was not known in the church. And and so we we think of it now as the foundational thing, but uh, at the time it wasn't known to be the foundational thing. Slowly over time, Joseph began to tell the story of the first vision, and as he did that, uh, his memories of it evolved. And so the version that we have now that happens to be published in the Pearl of Great Price differs from the earliest accounts of it. And so that's the that's the problem I think that actually arises. Not the problem. The problem isn't that reporters and historians automatically say miracles don't happen. Right, right. Let me just, I want to throw this up to just anyone jumping in, but this is something that I only discovered this year, that there's going to be many people who, who've known this for many years. There are going to be others that are just hearing this for the first time, but I guess it turns out that there are many Jews who who don't believe that there was a literal exodus because they've gone back and tried to figure out whether Moses really existed and whether the Red Sea is partable. And, and I guess Egyptian documents show no evidence of their, I don't know. But, but there, there are people, lots of Jews who believe that the, the story of the Exodus is metaphorical. And then there are lots of Christians, even, you know, even Episcopal bishops, I guess, like uh, Spong, who, who basically say that, that whether or not Christ really existed we're not so sure because the record is sort of sparse. And then they go back and talk about how the Bible was created. And it turns out that many of the books in the, in the New Testament, for example, um, you know, were passed down orally for two or three generations before anyone ever bothered to write them down. And the guy whose name is actually on the book was certainly not the guy who actually wrote the books because he maybe wasn't even able to write or read um, as an apostle. And I'm probably messing all this up, but it turns out that there is this broader movement within religion, especially Christianity and Judaism, to sort of downplay the literalness of of miraculous events like the flood, uh, etc. And and so I guess the implication here in this article is is that lots of other religions have dealt with this, and 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 the, and the smart, intellectual, thoughtful ones have sort of learned to take their religion as very metaphorical and symbolic and not so literal. And now it's it's Mormonism's turn to sort of decide how much of its history is going to become literal versus figurative. So for, forgive me if that wasn't valuable to the rest of you, but if, if that provides a little bit of context, now I'd love to hear someone just jump in and, and give some thoughts or perspective on the article. Well, I, I have a whole lot of different directions I could go. Obviously, the demythologization 
movement with Boltmann in the New Testament had a major influence in Christianity, and there was a great deal of discussion in the Boltmannian revolution. Uh, do you guys all know who Rudolf Boltmann is, by the way, New Testament scholar? No, um, I don't. Um, in any event, uh, you know, he, he had a program of reading the New Testament text in a way to demythologize it and put it back into its context um, in a way that would expose it, as it were. And obviously there was a lot of resistance. Um, the orthodoxy kind of grew out of that. And so you've, you've got this historical precedent in Christianity um, I think that, that Judaism has been largely secular for a very, very long time. I mean, anybody who visits Israel is going to know that the vast majority of Jewish people identify as Jewish, but not in the sense that they have a shared common belief system, but in the sense that they have a shared um, history of being common people. Um, and, and when we come and ask Mormons, well, are you willing to, you know, Gee, Joseph Smith told different versions of the first vision, so, and he didn't, you know, he, we didn't see a written version of it. It might have been referred to at least obliquely in the 1830 section, what's now section 20 of the DNC, but, you know, his first real telling of it is in his own history, in his own handwriting in 1832. Is that really foundational? Because, you know, what was foundational for the earliest Mormons was very clearly the Book of Mormon and the witness of the three witnesses to you know, that event. Very, very crucial for the earliest years of, of Mormonism. And, you know, the question that they're asking is, I think, one that is historically situated. And can can a religion maintain its religious force, its appeal, without it being taken in a sense, you know, God actually appeared to Joseph Smith. The Book of Mormon is actually what it claims to be. Can, a, you know, can people simply be secular Mormons, or can they be, for instance, what I would call an engaged Mormon, a person who is more than willing to be a part of the the um, church-going crowd, a part, you know, proud of heritage, but very skeptical of all of the faith claims. Um, and you know, I I've kind of been in all of those spectra at one point in my life or another, and and. Uh, have have settled very comfortably into, you know, what's happening, and what I want to talk about is moving, I guess, from a first level naivete to a second level naivete. Do you, have you guys heard these terms before? First level naivete, second level naivete. Yes. Yeah. For the benefit of our, let's just assume our our listeners, the average, you know, average member, maybe college age or above. So I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of listeners who haven't. So. Um, okay. Well. Um, what we're talking about, a first-level naivete, is is how I, I suppose everybody begins in kind of a childhood religion where everything is literally true. And there comes a movement to what, is, what we can call a second-level naivete. I'm not going to go into the philosophers who hold these views, but um, what happens is as people they take a second look at the, at the childhood faith and come away thinking, you know, Gee, Adam and Eve couldn't possibly have been as told in the in in the story of the Garden of Eden. You know, snakes really don't walk around, and they really don't talk to people. And if they did, people would be surprised. And so they begin to question this kind of of childish, literal approach. And I don't want to you know equate literalism always with with childish approach, but I want to I do want to 
compare it to moving away from a kind of innocence to a kind of of critical stance. And in the movement from the first level naivete to second level naivete, many people feel betrayed. They feel like they weren't told the truth. Um, they feel like the the people who who should have let them into the second level didn't do it. They kept them at the first level. It's kind of like when a person, I suppose, finds out there's no Santa Claus. Christmas is a lot less fun once there's no Santa Claus. Right. And so, um, you know, the question that's being asked now of, of Mormonism is historically situated, but it also has a, a deep psychological um, background. And, and a lot of people feel a lot of cognitive dissonance moving from this first level to the second level. Um, and, and there is also a third level, and, you know, we can go on and on. But the bottom line is we're asking the question, do we have, must we remain with a with this first level naivete where the stories are literally accepted uncritically accepted and and i don't the problem with mormonism and the problem with a lot of religions is that the intelligent person is going to look at the background history and question it precisely because they're believers precisely because they're they're so passionately intimately involved with it all it's a very natural movement and in my view it's a rather essential movement um, but it's a it's a passage of some danger. Yeah, well, Paul or John or Anne, why don't one of you guys jump in and and give some thoughts? Uh, I'm happy to jump in. Uh, I felt like that was a a very articulate way to uh, express the situation uh, that that Blake just expressed. Um, you know, when I when I read the article, I think the article is clarifying that LDS people do believe literally in the foundational elements of the church you know and and that could have been a legitimate question that would spring from you know the recent media attention that the church has gotten the the article seems to end uh with quotes that suggest that everybody in the church does believe in those things literally uh maybe the the first level maivete and I don't know why that is, and, and I, I don't know if uh, there are people on the panel that might have insights into that, but I, I do believe there are members in my neighborhood, in my ward, and, and across the church that that uh, are what Blake described as an engaged Mormon, uh, that might look at some parts, um, maybe some people look at more than others, but you know, take some parts and are skeptical that they are literally the way they were expressed to be. Um, and so I don't know why the press release, at least the, the impression I got from the press release, was that it expressed that things are uh, pretty universally accepted literally. Hey, Paul, yeah. I, get the, I got the sense, not so much that they were saying that, that that's what everyone believes, but that that's what legitimate Mormons should believe. And that's what, that's what I was tending to struggle with. I mean, they have the quote from President Hinckley that says, it's either true or false. If it's false, we're engaged in a great fraud. If it's true, it's the most important thing in the world. And so uh, I'm, I'm just so you know. Does this mean that we have to believe there was a literal flood that covered all the earth, and that Noah put two of every animals in the boat? Does this mean that we have to believe, um, you know, that millions of soldiers bought, fought with steel helmets and swords and shields, you know, somewhere around New York, and that? Uh, they really mean steel when they say steel, and they really mean, you know, sh swords and shields and helmets when they say helmets. But no one's found a, a sword or a helmet or a shield yet uh, of any sort of metallic composition. You know what? What are we allowed? 
what a lot of people who are frustrated with this press release ask is, you know, there's, you know, what's literal? Did Satan really go into God's presence and tempt Job? Do we have to take everything, you know, literally? You know, what are we allowed to take symbolically or metaphorically and not be sort of uh, feel uncomfortable and out of place? You know, John, I, I, I read differently, I suppose, what they were saying. I read that the power of the faith derives from taking it literally as, as something that's actually grounded in God's movement rather than something that was just made up as a fraud. Right. I mean, and, and there's a good deal of rationality to that kind of a position. Yes. Nobody, nobody's going to get up and move from Illinois to Utah, and certainly not from Norway to Utah, if they simply believe it's, a, it's an interesting story. If, it's, if, it, if that's all that it is, it's not going to generate the kind of commitment and passion that, um, you know, is appropriate to religious belief, because we're talking about... Um, a being who appropriately demands and commands us to worship. But and the dichotomy doesn't have to be between a literal story and an interesting story. The dichotomy can be between a, an inspired literal story and an inspired symbolic story. Can't it? I mean, can't that still be powerful? Well, but the problem is, is I mean... I see, for instance, the, the story in Genesis 1 and 2 as being intentionally mythological. I think with just a little bit of time, I could show everybody that the indicators in the text are, when it talks about Adam, hahadam means mankind. Eve comes from the Hebrew word dahaba, meaning life. We're talking about mankind and life. It has the same status as the play Everyman, for instance, in, in medieval thought. But when Joseph Smith says, I spoke with God, he's not saying the same kind of a thing. He's not playing the same language game. And when Joseph Smith said that, you know, the angel came down and showed me where the plates were located, reducing that to some kind of a mythology would, would not merely do it damage. It would be to misunderstand what's being asserted altogether as far as I'm concerned. And while I would give a different status altogether even to the resurrection stories, that we find in, in the New Testament, at some level, the, the Christian hope is based upon a fact that life is not going to end at death and that because of Christ's action, life will continue in, in some sense where we will have personal identity again or we will continue to have personal identity and Christ is proof of that. If that's not present, then the, the, in my view, the faith has lost it's essential meanings. Something very, very essential is lost. It simply cannot inspire and it cannot move in the way that, that it does if those things are true. And life has a very different meaning if those things are true. So I think that the church is, you know, to emphasize that the power of faith derives from the truthfulness of the claims that are made is appropriate. I, I don't think that it's appropriate, and I don't think that the article claims you've got to take everything that's been asserted hook, line, and sinker as literal. I mean, I don't see that in the story. Hmm. And I want to pipe in and say Please. that I actually agree to. I agree with that with that last statement that you made, Blake. the The quote that you read, John, by President Hinckley, actually just is referring to the foundational story of Mormonism, and that's singular. He, they're not saying that everything that we've ever been taught in any Sunday school class over a four-year period has to be taken literally. 
they they don't say that in this press release. I think what they're talking about here is is can be it's vague, but if you take it in the sense of just foundational story of Mormonism, I think what they're talking about is the first vision. Period. Oh, no, in the and, Book of Mormon, Book of Mormon historicity. Well, but they don't mention that. The Book of Mormon historicity is not a foundational story of Mormonism. Well, it says... It's, the, it's, the article does talk about yeah, the Book of does. Mormon. So it says, so it says, it's often asked, for example, how the Church can reconcile the authenticity of the Book of Mormon with the absence of archaeological proof. Yeah. No, so, but keep going, Anne. Keep going. Go ahead, well, I mean, but, but, well, there's authenticity, and then there's, I don't know, literalness. I do agree that the... That the and and Jeffrey Holland said this in his PBS interview that you run the risk if you try to mythologize or symbolize the Book of Mormon into something that really happened. That it is a core tenet of the faith that the stories in the Book of Mormon really happened. But if you don't believe that and you're not going to make trouble... You are welcome to continue to worship with us. And that's not... I, I, I intend to hold on to that. Yeah. I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to allow the, the, the hyperbolizing that often happens about it's either true or false. It gets... And, and it's not outsiders who do this it's insiders who do this they take the statement by president hinckley that you know either if the, the about and i believe he was referring to the first vision that if it happened if joseph had that vision it's the most important thing that ever happened and if it didn't happen then it's a fraud and people people expand on that they take it oh the church is either entirely true or it's entirely false they they set up this binary hypothesis that's it's it's a it's a false dichotomy. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing as anything that is entirely true or probably anything that's entirely false. And the church certainly doesn't fall into that into that entirely true and entirely false paradigm. It's just it it's just not reasonable. Well, ultimately, I think that the thinking Mormon has to ask you know, and I think the whole purpose of the quotation about the Book of Mormon was to say the importance of the Book of Mormon isn't that it happened in ancient America. It's not that we can find archaeology. The importance is the spiritual witness that comes with it. And, I mean, ultimately what the church is about is a changed life that's committed to love and to God. It's not about these kinds of extraneous things. And I think that's really the focus of what what Jeffrey Holland is saying, but it also assumes, I think, that the, the spiritual witness isn't just self-delusion. I mean, you know, every human being at a certain point has to ask, am I merely self-deceived in this? Because we've all, at some level, been self-deceived. And, and so every human being must be cognizant, I think, of that possibility. But the importance of the Book of Mormon isn't that we may find archaeological evidence. I mean, I'd love that. But the bottom line is the change that it brings to people's lives. And that can happen regardless of the historicity of the Book of Mormon. It, can, it, it changes people's lives even though they know nothing about archaeology. They don't know anything about DNA. 
And so I, I can go to that extent and say to that extent it's historicity maybe beside the point, but it's assumed in the point. And the, the other thing he said, you know, is, is it can't be based on evidence because they're, you know, I don't want to, however, give the impression that I don't believe there isn't any evidence. I don't believe that there's anything like compelling archaeological evidence, but I do believe that there's there's very persuasive evidence of the of the historicity of the Book of Mormon, and I'm coming back from a more skeptical position, being persuaded by that, and and asking myself, how do I account for what I find? And I think that that's what the Book of Mormon is supposed to do. It's supposed to engage people to ask the question, is this even possible? And what does it mean if it is possible? And then to let open to an extent, to let the Spirit work. And then what becomes important isn't the, is this historical question. It's what, is, what does it mean now that the Spirit is working in my life as a result of this inquiry? That's, that's my take anyway. Yeah, I just here's here's what I'm struggling with. Uh, not, not not. I mean, I'm happy with the church. I love it. I'm committed to it, and I have a faith and a testimony uh, in in the gospel and in, in much of the church. But there's something that's discordant or dissonant for me in 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 this press release. You know, it it says things like it says things like the scrutiny does not require that the church compromise or hide from its history. Far from being a liability. Mormons view their history as one of the church's greatest assets. But if you, that there's something missing here in terms of candor or openness or confession. I don't know what it is. And I don't call on the brethren of the church to, to like do some big mea culpa or apologize because I don't think it would be in the church's interest to do that. But I mean, if you just look at certain things, like for example, the way that we've portrayed the the translation of the Book of Mormon with Joseph studying the plates and you know the disparity between that and what the historical record shows, which is the stone and the hat thing that we all are now becoming familiar with. It I can't think that it happened any other way. That somebody along the lines said, you know, this won't be as believable, even though all you know a- angelic visits are absurd. Somehow somebody thought along the way that it's going to be a lot less believable. If if we have Joseph a picture of Joseph with his head in a hat with a stone inside, then it will be if he somehow through divine inspiration figured out what Reformed Egyptian was and what it meant and did like more of a literal translation. And See, if you, and John, if you, I'm not sure if if there there is this conscience act where where the the true um, the true thing that actually happened uh, is deliberately distorted. Uh, you know, with the with the image of a way that that isn't represented, but rather uh, that over time, as the memory fades, as as these witnesses all aren't in the LDS Church, uh, that you know, different people produce images because they imagine that that's how it happened. Then that becomes our folklore. That becomes our belief, and we start to believe that you know that these stories, these folklores, these myths that we have about the origin story, you know, are 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 gospel. And then we find out that they conflict with the historical record. But I think it's you don't have to sit around and constantly deconstruct your history. I mean, that's something that historians do, is constantly deconstruct history. You have to, as a people, you have to be able to have your own positive story. You have to be able to construct a positive, faithful narrative. But, that, but you can do that. You can construct a positive, faithful narrative in a way that is informed by 
history and that once you've seen what the historians have done to take apart all the pieces you can see well this is this is the most likely thing that actually happened and this is how we can honestly and openly tell our story in an inspiring way that is actually you know consonant with the historic record I, I agree with that. I think it's absurd to complain that some artist painted a picture with Joseph Smith sitting there looking at the plates, and somehow, you know, you know, we expect that artist to have had the basis in history to know what he was doing. The, the historical record itself shows that the memory of how the, you know, of what the witnesses were saying, how this particular translation occurred was simply lost and it was it wasn't through intentional oversight it was it was through not knowing the sources because the sources generally weren't available we live in a world where all the sources are on the internet you can but, get them in 10 minutes but blake, that's not the way it was but blake if you just look at some point 10 or 20 years ago the general authorities had to have discovered this elder nelson gave and this is just one this is just one of many topics that we could bring up but at some right. point elder nelson published an article in the end sign where he said this looks like how it's happened but the church still shows that picture on the cover. It's ensign. It still puts that inside, you know. And you have to learn through South Park these days as to how the translation probably really happened. And and it's not just that. It's post manifesto polygamy. It's the whole peepstone treasure digging thing. I mean, you could you could mention twenty things about the church's history that I've always got the feeling that the church would very much prefer that those things disappear. In in much contrast to this type of statement that Mormons view their history as one of the church's great greatest assets. I think most Mormons don't know much of their history, and the, the stuff that they start learning, they become really scared of. And then once they actually learn the, the more factual history and the disparity between that and what they were raised to believe is one of the greatest sources for their disaffection. So for me, there is a huge contrast between the reality of the record and and the and the the messiness, which I don't think in any way proves the church false, but there's a big disparity for me between that and the way this article seems to be coming off for me. You know, I I I just I think that you're not being charitable to those who were involved. First of all, many of the church authorities are are still with first level naivete. If you expect that they know all of this just because they're general authorities, I think that that in itself is naive. Did you say most sec- general authorities are in first level naivete? I said some. Oh, some. Okay. Yeah. Now, I've and I've also had conversations with general authorities about these these very issues, and I know that they have they have discussed among themselves the best way to to you know address these kind of issues, and they have determined that those who are interested can go to uh, more professional publications that are easily available, both through the church, through BYU, and elsewhere, that will give them all of this information, but. The question is, how do we move? There's a, a kind of philosophy if you if you give people meat before they're ready to chew on it, they're going to choke on it. Yeah. And and so what we you know you don't when I raise my kids, I don't rush up to them and say, oh by the way, Adam and Eve probably never really existed right. because you know <laughs> I, I I deal with them when they're ready to deal with those kinds of issues as they grow and cognitively they're able to grasp those, and that's that's why I say the the. The pathway from first-level naivete to second-level naivete involves some danger. It involves the danger of disillusionment, of feeling betrayed. And, and the church, I think, is – I mean, I see a movement now, you know, and, and I'll be discussing this actually at a Sunstone um, panel where we talk about inoculation and, and whether or not – that. it seems that there's a lot less sense of betrayal if somebody who is, is faithful and knows about it, you know, is forthcoming and transparent and fully honest – 
than if they find it out from, for instance, from a disaffected or anti-Mormon. And it seems to me that, that there's a real risk or danger. I, I, you know, I remember pulling my son aside just before he left on his mission and, and saying, listen, son, I want you to know Brigham Young really did teach that Adam is God. And I want to talk that through with you. I want you to be prepared because I don't want you telling anybody that you teach that the church never taught that. Well, maybe the church didn't, but Brigham Young believed it, and it was part of a, a large theology, and I want to explain why he believed it. But, you know, I don't want you telling your, your um, investigator something that just isn't so. And we had conversations about all, a lot of different things at that point because it was important at that point in his life to know. So I... I think in being charitable, you've got to realize that a lot of the church authorities themselves, we make this assumption, church authority knows everything. They're all liars because they know everything. I've heard that dozens of times from anti-Mormons. You know, they, they just know it. That's not true. They are, they are themselves at different levels of discovering. Some of them don't give a woof about church history. It just isn't important to them. And you can't expect them to know all of the ins and outs of these issues. And, and so I, you know, when I deal with with people who have these kinds of questions, I actually, you know, I want to get a sense and sensitivity. I would never bring up these kinds of issues just for shock value. Yes, true. Yeah, for sure. And, and Blake, just th those of my listeners who have heard me in, in previous episodes, I absolutely uh, feel only empathy for the position of the brethren. I don't think this is an easy issue. I don't think all of them know all the issues. And I also don't think that 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 um that they're being intentionally deceitful or manipulative. I just want to make sure you understand that that's not my position. Um, I, I only have empathy for their position, but I do think that you know the church has some type of pamphlet or brochure for people who are struggling with same-sex attraction. You know, they have a pamphlet about how to stay out of debt and financially secure. They have uh you know an adoption program for people who can't have kids. But the one thing that I get frustrated about is, where's the resource? Where's the pamphlet? Where's the program for people who are in droves these days, stumbling upon these historical issues and feeling disaffected and ostracized? And as a result, they sometimes marriages end. Sometimes uh, relationships with parents or children become extremely stressed or even fractured. I, I do. I do wonder sometimes... Can't we do something more than what we've done to reach out to these people that seem to be in so much pain over this? You know. Well, you um, know, and they've well, they've addressed it a bit in the church news. Just, I'm just going to make two observations, and then I'll get the heck out of the way. But um, the church news, for instance, two weeks ago had an article on the various versions of the first vision. Right. They they dealt with the Mountain Meadows massacre. There's a there's a recognition that um, there's a duty to raise these issues, raise them responsibly with disclosure. But, you know, at a certain level, it has to be the individual member who is going to do the research. I mean, I knew about almost all of this stuff as a junior in high school, and I'm surprised when people don't care enough to find out about it until they're 30 and then want to blame everybody else because it was kept from them. And I want to say, what, don't you read? <laughs> <laughs> well, and go ahead. Well, you know, and then there are those of us who, you know, joined the church when, they were, when we were 26 out in the hinterlands and, you know, married into all this information, you know, 15 years at, or 10 years after my baptism. Um, it, 
the resources that are available to the people that are in the Utah Valley and the prominence of the church are completely, it's completely different. It's completely different out in, you know, large, very large capital cities in the Midwest. Um, but I do want to say that I agree with you about the direction and I'm actually very hopeful about the direction, and I think this article may even signal at, in its very last sentence a direction when it says, far from being a liability, Mormons view their history as one of the church's greatest assets. Maybe that's a signal. Maybe, you can, maybe we can take that as, as, a, as a statement that we are not going to present as much of the watered-down, one-sided pablum, baby food, that people, that we've been saying, milk before meat, milk before meat, milk before meat. Well, you know, I've been a member now for 20 years, and, <laughs> I've, and I'm sick of milk. I'm sick of milk. And... It, I think that this may be a signal of a direction that the church is actually going to, in publications like the Ensign, like the Church News, here on LDS.org, start presenting some more, some tougher things. Yeah. And I can only hope. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, the thing I worry about is that it will ultimately weaken the church. But, Paul, let's get you in here. We haven't heard much from you. Well, I'm one of those that uh, didn't know about these issues when I was a junior in high school and then found out about them when I approached 30 and went through my sense of feeling betrayed for a while there until I got over that. Um, but I read a lot. I mean, I read um, every one of the books that was on the approved list when I was on my mission multiple times. Um, the Book of Mormon, all the standard works I read through. Um, and, you know, simple things like um, Joseph Smith was a polygamist I didn't know. You know, and, and when I came across them... It was difficult, so I, you know, I would like to see a, a movement in, in the direction of inoculate, you know, inoculating people for this sort of thing, or at least you know, discussing a little more openly. Um, you know, may, maybe I leave it at that. I, I think that uh, you know, the, the sentence that uh, we were talking about a little bit during uh, this press release around the, well, far from being a liability, Mormons view their history as one of the church's greatest assets. There's certainly certainly some truth to that. You know, our heritage, uh, our pioneer heritage, is uh, extremely valuable. The whole foundational stories around the first vision, the restoration of the priesthood, etc. I think there are aspects of our history that I would say most uh, members are at least to some degree uncomfortable with. Um, you know, the revelation around the policy for priesthood in 1978, uh, polygamy in general, I think, is something that's troubling for most of our members. Um, so I, I think I think it's a, a mixed bag. I think that there are aspects of it that are extremely important in faith promoting, and there are aspects of it that cause people to struggle. And maybe it's the latter that that uh, really help you move from level one to level two. Yeah, the, the the you know when I said before that I was worried that this openness may ultimately not be good for the church. It's because I have seen a strong correlation between exposure to the to the tougher elements of church history and ultimate disaffection from the church. And so I always like to invoke sort of the Leonard Arrington experiment that the brethren in good faith said, you know, we're the one true church. We have nothing to hide. 
let's open up a church history department, open up the archives, open up the vaults, and let's have a Camelot of uh, open and candid church history because, you know, what do we have to lose? And, you know, one interpretation of that narrative is that five, six years into the experience, they realized that this stuff actually wasn't faith-promoting, and that's what ultimately led them to monitor Arrington stuff, start to uh, ed- editorialize, and eventually shut down the department and close you know, the archives to the extent that they became a lot less open than they previously maybe had been. And, and I actually don't see that as a sinister thing. I see it as a very practical... We have members of the church who are struggling with addiction, with just keeping their marriage alive. We have members of the church who are just trying to, uh, you know, find a way to stay faithful. The last thing they need is to learn about post-manifesto polygamy. So, you know, is it possible that, well, either one of two things. This could be a pendulum thing where just like with the Arrington years, we swing open. But then we have the Sunstone and Dialogue stuff that came afterwards and and it forces the church to then retrench, as Armin Moss has talked about, and and pull back? Or could it actually be the eventual undoing of uh, a critical mass of membership in the church and its growth? Any any thoughts on that? Well, it's inevitable. The Internet has changed the world and has changed the way that the church can, can you know, address these kinds of issues because anybody who gets on the Internet can have the full temple endowment, the history of the temple endowment, every change that was ever made, pictures of what happens inside, you know, within minutes. And my guess is that when, when uh, you know, missionaries in developed areas go to investigators, the first thing they do is go Google Mormon Church or something like that. So I don't think that the church has the luxury any longer of of allowing members to come to this piecemeal when they're when they seek it out themselves because it's going to be foisted on them. They're going to be, they're going to be confronting this. Um, even though they're not seeking it out, it will be foisted onto them by those who want to make sure that they're aware of it. And so, and at a certain level, you know, openness and, and transparency are very healthy. Um, a healthy faith says, you know, I, my faith can can withstand the kinds of challenges that are going to come. And I don't know what they're going to be. That's why they're challenges. But I, I, I don't fear. Fear is the opposite of faith. Right. And so I'm, really, I'm simply willing to be open and transparent. And I'll do whatever I can to be honest with people. On the other hand, I think that it, you know, and you've got various factions within the church about how to address this because not everybody is of one accord because it's not obvious what the best thing to do in response is. Yeah. And you simply get different pharaohs on the block from time to time who have different ideas. And But I like what the church is doing right now. I like using the church news as a vehicle for addressing and raising these issues. I, I like using the ensign to do it. I I mean, it, I will simply make this observation. Anybody, for instance, who's read a 1912 improvement era and compared it to the Ensign is going to see a very vast difference in what's going on. I mean, the the entire Spalding issue, for instance, with the Book of Abraham was played out in the pages of the improvement era with debates going back and forth. It was very open. And B.H. Roberts, I think, probably brought that to the church because of the way he was willing to approach things. The Ensign is written at a very different audience. The Ensign, if you read the Improvement Era, it was addressed to a very high and educated level with a lot of articles. We don't see that very often. It's written, as I understand it, at an eighth grade level. Yeah. It's very hard to, to write at an eighth grade level and address a lot of these issues. 
Right. Yeah. I, I think there's certainly a difficult tension to balance here, and and I don't have a solution for it either. So <laughs> count me there. But um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I some things that I think would be helpful are maybe to look closely at the rhetoric um, in in the things like the the news article here. I, I'm not terribly offended by the article, by the way, but you know, if there's a way to sort of moderate some of the discussion around, uh, you know, how people feel literally about things and perhaps metaphorically about things and how some may get value here and some may get value there. I don't know. Uh, if there, if there's a, if there's a sense in the, in the rhetoric that we hear over the pulpit that, uh, we're, that there is the openness, you know, and, and there is the willingness to, to address the issues head on. I think that's very helpful, but it, it is a difficult problem. Well, John Hammer, let's give you the last word in all this. I, I had one more little quote I wanted to read. Here's a, this is a, quote in, in dialogue. It says that the saints were not perfect, uh, nor their leaders without error is evident to anybody who cares to read the original records of the church. But the myths and myth-making persist. Striking evidence for this is found in the fact that currently one of the most successful anti-Mormon proselyting, I'm sorry, proselyting techniques is to merely bring to light obscure or suppressed historical documents. Reading these historical documents arouses a considerable amount of incredulity, concern, and disenchantment among Mormons under the spell of this mythological view of history. Individuals find these bits and pieces of history so shocking and face-shattering. Uh, it is at once uh, the, the meat of fundamentalistic heresies and an indictment of the uh, quasi-suppression of historical reality which propagates a one-sided view of Mormon history. The, this this uh, actually comes from the original issue of Dialogue in 1966, Dr. Wow. Francis Lee Menlove. So this isn't the problem that um, is brand new, you know, with the internet or any other thing. Obviously, the internet makes it impossible uh, uh, to to completely control information anymore. But uh, if the, if there is a good direction coming now, it's it's been very slow coming. That would be my observation. Well, well, wonderful. I. Uh this is a this is a very fascinating discussion for me. I, I think I'm going to go listen to it tomorrow morning. I think there's a lot that I missed that um, I'll have to listen to two or three times to really grasp. But it's been wonderful. So I want to thank all of you as panelists for uh, engaging in this conversation. It's about time to wrap up. So why don't we go ahead with our famed end of show and allow a few thoughts or rants um, and and and. Uh, I know we we had uh, we had hoped to talk a little bit about this dust up that happened uh, in Congress, but why don't you see what you can do to to morph that, that into in your uh, your oh, rant? I'd be glad to. There was uh, a uh, Harry Reid. There is a, actually a Mormon angle to this. Harry Reid asked a Hindu priest who is in charge of interfaith relations at a Hindu temple in, in northern Nevada to say the brief opening prayer that is offered in the Senate. And members, the American Family Association uh, urged its members to protest this matter because the person offering the prayer would be praying to a non-monotheistic God. And three people were taken out of the gallery for shouting taunts and heckling the priest before he offered what was, in my opinion, a very lovely prayer for a peace, which was very nice. And I think that uh, it's, a, it's a sad situation that 
the level of our public discourse about religion in the United States has become so obnoxious that followers of Jesus Christ can heckle a faithful person offering a prayer in a public meeting in the uh, chambers of the Senate. Uh, it, it's, just, it's just beyond me. Uh, the, I think that it's probably inevitable because religion has become such a, such a political issue now. Politics, religion entered politics in an effort to affect change, um, and it, politics is a dirty game. And so now religion has gotten dirty too. So that's my rant. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Anne. Um, Paul, why don't you give us yours? I'm sorry, John. I just don't have a rant tonight. Oh, no, no problem, no problem. It's nice meeting you all. This is a <laughs> great uh, chance. I, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I thought it was some great topics, so thank you. Oh, thank, thank you, Paul. All right, John? Oh, I was just going to use my time to plug uh, attending Sunstone. Sunstone's annual symposium and workshops are going to be held August 8th uh, through the 11th in Salt Lake City. So I'll be heading out to Salt Lake City for the second time this year. And there's going to be just all kinds of discussions, um, you know, just like we're having right here on Mormon Matters, except for everybody will be able to do it in person. And I, I think, well, Blake was just saying that he's going to have a panel, and I'm going to be on a panel or two, and uh, uh, going to be a whole bunch of great stuff. I'll be there, and Ann will be there as well. Paul, you're the only uh, dude left out here. Yeah, so I, you know, I've already made the trip down there this summer a couple times. I think oh. I'm good. <laughs> Well, so we all going to have lunch on Friday, right? Well, yeah, we need to do something or dinner or something yeah. like that. All right. Well, Blake, why don't you uh, why don't you share with us your thoughts or your closing uh, your rant? Thank you, and 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 thank you for honoring me by inviting me to be a part of the discussion. Um, it's discussions like this, I think, that are very healthy. My rant is: When is the United States going to wake up and? How is it possible that a plaintiff's attorney can bring an action against the church because the guy was a home teacher of somebody? I mean, it, that is just so attenuated from anything that could happen. When are people going to wake up? And, and it just drives me crazy as an attorney to see the kind of greed driving this kind of nonsense. So that's my rant. I, I'd, like to, I'd like to suggest that the people who are involved in that kind of thing give everybody a bad name, and it doesn't do any of us any favors. Well, very good. Well, um, well, uh, to close, I just want to thank again all of you panelists for coming on Mormon Matters. Uh, Paul, uh, Anne, and, Anne and John, it's always a pleasure to have you with us. And, and Paul and Blake, we hope that you'll return again and join us in future episodes. Uh, so thank you all for coming on. It was great to be here again, John. Anytime. Great. Um, for our listeners, we want to please encourage you to visit us at mormonmatters.org where you can comment on this episode or any past episodes. We also um, want to encourage you to email us at mormonmatters at gmail.com with your thoughts or questions. Uh, uh, we did put out an APB for uh, additional conservative panelists because uh, you know we've had some schedules of conflict in the past. We're, we're glad Blake could come on to help fill that uh gap a bit and we've had a few others so we hope to uh continue to 
seek as much balance as we possibly can. But thank you all so much for tuning in to Mormon Matters, and we hope to join uh, with you all again really soon. To hear more of this wonderful music, please check out ClaytonPixton.com. That's C-L-A-Y-T-O-N-P-I-X-T-O-N.com. Thank you very much.